Today we talk to Bo Ruin, the head of data at the Alzheimer's Society in the UK. We are going to discuss how you can use Agile as a methodology to help you do better, be more effective, and have better outcomes with your data products and projects. Some of you may be familiar with Agile methodology. It's an approach that originally was designed to help software engineers turn out better software more efficiently. We are not going to become Agile masters. This point of this is not to put every single piece of Agile into place. The idea is to learn methods and approaches that allow us to iterate more quickly, try new things more effectively, and find the pieces that really work by getting feedback as quickly as possible and making rapid adjustments to get things out in the world rather than letting perfect be the enemy of the good. So join me and Bo for a great discussion about the pieces of Agile that you can put in place even if you've never heard of Agile before, so you can have effective data to run and power your world change. Hello, and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, where we explore the human side of analytics to help amplify the impacts of those out to change the world. With me, Alexandra Mannering. Thank you so much for joining me today, Bo. I was wondering if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. I'm Bo Run. I'm the head of data at the Alzheimer's site in the UK. Uh, I've been working in data profession for quite some time now, pretty much ever since I uh, first started working. I've always worked in the not-for-profit sector here in the UK, so working for universities as well as national charities. And I know we connected because you've led the first ever data strategy for the Alzheimer's Society, which is an amazing feat. And uh, I would like to get into that a little bit. But one of the things that we were going to talk about today is this idea of bringing Agile to data development. And I wanted to start with just what is Agile? Because I think that concept of Agile might be new to some of our listeners. Yeah, well, you know, I'll pull my hand up here at this point and say, look, I'm not actually a qualified Agile practitioner. I don't hold any certifications in Agile. But I think really, for me, it's taking some of the core principles of Agile. So Agile in its history came up through software development, understanding that a lot of software development didn't go very well, precisely for many of the reasons that many of the projects we get involved in don't go very well. You know, they're very waterfall. You catch all your requirements up front. Then you do all your design, then you do all your development, and then you do all your testing, and then you do rollout. And on paper, that sounds great, that sounds very logical. But in practice, what often happens is things change. You know, business change, people's ideas change. People realize maybe they didn't read what they asked that they wanted at the beginning of a project is not what they want by the end of the project. So I'm sure you know, most people would have experienced this coming towards the end of the project, and you're desperately trying to roll out your whatever it is, a process, a new system, a change, a new product. And suddenly people are saying, oh, actually, I want that to work differently. I want that box from this side of the screen to the other side. Or I thought I wanted to capture this data, but actually I don't really want to capture it anymore. I'll capture something else. So Agile really is a philosophy, uh, a loose philosophy that says, look, rather than doing all of these processes in blocks, what we should do kind of much of it at the same time concurrently, focusing on smaller achievable goals, uh, working more iteratively. And I think for me, the most important bit is really about embracing failure. So again, this is recognizing that in all of our projects, 
that we work on almost in any industry, there is to some extent in every project failure, but we, things that maybe we don't quite achieve to scope or achieve the timeline or achieve the, all the benefits that we hoped we would achieve in our projects. But rather than kind of shying away from that and saying, no, we've got to be more robust to avoid failure altogether, it's about recognizing, okay, there will be some failure, but it's better to fail earlier and recognize where you've gone wrong so you can take corrective action rather than spending maybe six months, 12 months on a massive project only to realize you, all these failures have come up at the end. So Agile, uh, that's probably not a very good definition of Agile, but Agile really is about kind of shifting some of those traditional kind of project methodologies or development methodologies on its head, not shying away from issues that might come up uh, and come up with a way of working that tackles those issues. I think that at the core, what you're saying about Agile is that you're moving from this linear approach to design to much more a cyclic approach, right? That, and the reason it's called Agile is that cyclic approach where you do the minimum possible right, you test it, you see if it works and you adjust it, makes you much more responsive, like you were saying, to changes in scope, to discovering that what you thought you needed wasn't actually what you needed, uh, that you needed something different. Or And I, I, one of the things that stood out to me is that this Agile came out of technology and software where you're building something for the first time. You're creating a software that didn't exist or a program that didn't exist. But for most nonprofits, when we're talking about data, that's also something that didn't exist before or really didn't exist in a meaningful way. So you're doing the same thing where you're bringing a program of data collection or evaluation or you know whatever piece you're trying to do with data for the first time. And so if you took that sort of linear approach, you might get to the end and realize that the things that you thought you needed because you had never done this before weren't in fact the things that you needed and you needed something different. Whereas if you're doing this cyclic approach, you'll try a little something, you'll see if it's right. And if you go, oh, no, 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 like you were saying, we didn't actually wanna collect that, we needed something different. You have time because you failed fast to try something different. Absolutely, yeah, that kind of recognizing that actually people cannot in most cases tell you absolutely everything that they want particularly for data and i think that this links to this idea also about data literacy you know i think it's not unfair to say that in most organizations and in across much of the world i think people are not perhaps as data literate as we would like them to be but rather than kind of putting the blame onto them and i think agile gives us a really good framework for how to work around that issue so okay if someone can't say upfront exactly how a database screen should look like or how a data process should look like or exactly how the data elements of a product should match up to its business and the benefits well then let's take smaller steps smaller chunks of uh, what we're trying to build build it experiment let people use it let people experience it so that they can go oh that is not not how i imagined or actually that is how i imagined and that works i find in pretty much anything we do with data whether that's data collection so we can say okay let's spin up a quick form to collect data try it out how does that work you know, is it getting us all the data we want are we finding data quality problems that we weren't aware of before or we couldn't imagine before it could work in reporting where again people sometimes aren't very sure upfront what are the right kpis and metrics they should be looking at for a report so we always say okay well let's spin up a minimum viable product version of that report. Maybe it only has two metrics on it. Maybe it only has three metrics on it. But let's try it out. 
Uh, and more recently, you know, I've been saying to a lot of people and business leaders here, they kind of think, oh, I'm not sure what my KPI should be. And I would say, well, let's try it out. Even if you have absolutely no idea, just make one up. We'll put it in, we'll experiment with it, with it. And whereas if you have nothing to play with, you could be spending three months, six months trying to work out what is the perfect metric and not really getting it. Whereas if you just put one in, even if you just made it up with no intelligence, I guarantee that within two months, you'll know whether that's a good measure or not a good measure. I've heard before, sometimes knowing what you don't want is just as valuable. So if you put something up there and they go, I don't want that, that didn't help me. They'll now have an idea of well, why didn't it help you? What was missing? And they'll start to be able to verbalize like, oh, well, I went to look at it and I realized that it, it, it wasn't timely enough. You gave me something that was monthly, but really I need this weekly. I need to be able to respond to it. Or I, once I saw that, it made me actually really want to know this thing, which wasn't part of it. And so you can start to, like you said, because they're responding to something, you get a lot more feedback than just like, okay, we have to come up with the perfect measure from the very beginning. Yeah, I couldn't have said that better myself. Um, the only bit I would add is sometimes people also, without experience of the actual product, just can't really imagine what the right process should be. Uh, I can give an example of, you know, maybe as a part of a recruitment process, you imagine you should grab somebody's, you know, right to work documentation early on because it makes sense. You want to grab it early on so you know whether you can hire this person. But maybe actually, if you design that to be pre-interview or during the interview, that's not the time when people have those documentation to hand. <laughs> So you, can, you might design the process, say, right, at this point, we're going to grab this kind of data uh, to fulfill the process. Once you've tried, tried it out in the real world or even just in testing, you quickly realize, oh, actually, we can't do that at that point because people won't have the right information to hand. That's not the point. They can provide that data. However, maybe later down the process or maybe earlier in the process is a better time to grab that piece of data. So, yeah, it's... Without experience, um, I think it is quite difficult for people to imagine exactly what they want. Now, one thing that I would like to explore a little bit, because you know, if somebody is like, this sounds really interesting, I'd like to do this, and they go and read a bunch about Agile, there are some differences with using Agile for software development than there are for using Agile to develop data products. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how can we successfully apply Agile approach to data rather than, than software development? Yeah, I think one of the things we often find is that it's quite hard to do agile in a very pure way particularly if you come from a scrum background for example you know making sure everyone's doing the stand-ups or making sure everyone's working within the sprints making sure everyone in the team is available that can sometimes be quite hard particularly if your organization's not used to working in agile so one of the things that we've tried to do is try to adapt it so Rather than being particularly pure about how to do Agile, particularly things like Scrum, we've uh, just taken some of the core principles. So we mentioned failing fast earlier. We always say, well, let's embrace failing fast because failing fast means you learn earlier in the process. We often focus on the principles of being iterative. So again, rather than saying, what does perfection look like for this report or for this metric or for this data collection? or the, the, the data storage, you say, okay, well, what does one fundamental requirement that look like? Uh, and then let's build it, and then let's build on top of that. You know, I can give, often give a reporting as an example where we say, look, don't try to think of what your perfect dashboard is going to look like up front. 
just think a couple of elements up front. See how that goes. That could be the minimum viable product. That's better than what you have now, which is nothing. Add two or three metrics, see how they go, refine them, then add another two or three metrics. And often you'll find actually you get there faster this way as well. I think other kind of principles that we take is around really taking uh, this idea that it's about the outcome more than the process. In way it's about, you know, can we provide, say, a, a reporting that people actually find useful rather than are we trying to create a report? See what I mean? It's we're less task orientated, but more kind of outcome orientated. Um, I think that's extremely important. And some of the kind of kind of rituals of uh, Scrum and Agile that we do sometimes find quite useful is things like daily stand-ups uh, or at least regular stand-ups. Um, these are you know short intervals, typically at the beginning of the day, where people come together to talk about what they've achieved, what they're looking to achieve, and if there are any blockers, being able to verbalize it so other people in the team can try to unblock things. And that often avoids periods of downtime where people are just waiting around for someone else to do something or they're kind of unsure how to get on um other things like taking on sprints because you don't have to do agile sprints but we find doing sprints again helps people focus by saying look we have a two-week sprint and the, within that two weeks we're going to take on do these very few requirements very few user stories that gives people a great focus on what they're working on at, at this immediate point and then other things like uh, retrospectives that we run as well just looking back over a previous sprint, kind of, kind of uh, going over what have we managed to achieve, what did we not achieve, and the, the things that we didn't achieve, why didn't we achieve them, what could we learn from that going forward. So we find that if you take on some of these principles of Agile, you just find you're very much a learning organization or a very learning team who, who learns from past mistakes as well as past successes. And you can bring all of that knowledge and experience forward much quicker. In a very meta way, you're taking an agile approach to agile implementation, right? Minimum viable, like we're not going to do agile perfectly. We acknowledge we're not going to do agile perfectly, but we're going to do better than we did before with this new approach by taking the most essential elements and getting a minimum viable agile approach in place, which I love. This is something that can happen with agile, you know, because there are some like very strict technical trainings and like that you're supposed to do these things in this certain way. And instead, what you're saying is like there are benefits to just the principles, even if you're not necessarily doing all of these very specific technical approaches with agile. And I think like what you're saying of the maybe not necessarily worrying about having the sprints be perfectly run in an agile form, but instead just taking this idea that we're going to do a very short period of work because that will force us to get out of this. I'm going to build this until it's done, right? You're going to keep that failing fast because you know you're going to look at and deploy what you've built in two weeks, regardless of whether it's perfect or done or whatever. It's going out the door in some way to be reviewed or tested or something. And the retrospectives, right, this idea, again, like this can be a very formal assessment of this structured sprint, or you can just say from the retrospective that we're just going to make sure we reserve time to look back at what we've done, to assess where we are, and to move forward. Because, of, of course, this fail-fast approach falls apart immediately if you aren't coming back and refining. If you just sort of put out minimum viable and you never touch it again, that's also not going to be very helpful for anybody. One other thing that I was going to ask you about is just bringing up this concept of user testing, 
right? That I think that this is something, you know, we talked about earlier that people can't really tell you what they want or need at the very beginning. So they need to be exposed to it. And Agile does have this concept of user acceptance testing, which again, typically is in the software space. But if we can bring that into the data space, you get this idea of actually having the people who are supposed to be in consuming the data or interacting with it um, actually having some play into it. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about user acceptance testing. Yeah, I think this is a really good concept. It's certainly very prominent in Agile, but frankly, I think even if you didn't do Agile, you should be doing user acceptance testing. This is one of the most fundamental points I always try to encourage our teams to, to take on because user acceptance testing is in a way the flip side to user requirements. So user requirements, what you do up front with the user to say to you, what do I want out of here? And user acceptance testing is their confirmation of whether the thing you've produced uh, has actually met expectations. I think this is really useful for a few different reasons. One is this theme that we've talked about several times now around how people's expectations sometimes change. What they said when they told you what the requirements are sometimes isn't the same as when they're testing it. They suddenly decide they've changed their mind. Or sometimes even if it's not they've changed their mind, maybe the business has changed. Maybe the, the external factor has come in that has changed the environment. And now the business has to adapt to that. The user acceptance testing really helps capture any of those kind of changes. The other thing I think is that it just engenders a much more collaborative a non-paternalistic view of development um, for data, because I think it's sometimes very easy for data professionals, I think, to think, well, we know what's best. We know how to best capture data. We know what good reporting looks like. So we'll design that and we'll give it to the people, or give it to the users, and they will surely love it. And often within surprise that they don't love it. <laughs> and I think that's probably because it's a very paternalistic way of producing work. And I think actually, if you involve the users, particularly in testing, it's much more collaborative and they get a sense that they have more stake in the product that you're producing. And at the end of the day, it's them that are then signing off the work to say, I am satisfied with the thing that you've produced. And if nothing else, even if you're looking at this from a purely selfish angle, I always think, well, this distributes responsibility much better. Because if you release something, whether it's a process or a product or a system or a change, and you didn't get the users to test it, then anything that comes out that's wrong with it, any bugs, any deficiencies in the process, any inefficiencies, that becomes your fault now, and 100% your fault, because you designed it, you released it. But if you have a user's test it, then you kind of share that responsibility. You can kind of say, well, the user said they were happy. They said that it made them efficient. It, they said that it met all their needs. So actually, people aren't going to come back and say, well, you just designed the wrong you know, wrong solution. Actually, they're much more likely to come back and say, okay, I understand now that maybe things have changed and I want something different. Not because you've done it wrong, but because I want something different now. So it really removes blame culture, I think. I talked with a woman about participatory data analysis, and it has that same idea that like, yes, there may be people who have more technical skills in terms of the data work itself, but by bringing a group together who are involved and have a stake in the outcome of that data work, you can, like you said, collaboratively develop something that works well for everyone involved, rather than you know meeting the requirements of the people who are building it, but not necessarily of the people who are consuming it or who are going to use it. And you never know, they may 
bring to light something that you did not understand about the data because you weren't the one collecting it or you didn't understand how something landed from a business context, like the actual work, you know, frontline side. So you can get an even better product out of that collaboration. Yeah, and I think actually for data analysis, if we mean take that to mean sort of data insight work or maybe even data science work these days, I think that's probably even more important because it's very easy for you know people they're working in data with maybe a statistical background to really drill down very deep into the data, find correlations and think that's really significant. But, you know, with fairness to my fellow data colleagues, we don't always have all the business knowledge. And what we may see as extremely significant might, if we added a bit of business context, realize that actually that's not very important at all. That's pretty superficial or coincidental. And similarly, you know, when we do data analysis, and particularly if we really start doing some of the more advanced data analysis uh, using statistics or, or machine learning, data science, it can be quite hard sometimes to present the results of those outcomes because they're very technical. They require quite a lot of technical understanding. So part of user testing is also user co-creation so that people can kind of give you some feedback around is that something that's understandable to a stakeholder or is that something that's like a foreign language to a stakeholder? And that can help, uh, even if you're doing data analysis, help you really get a much better presentation at the end. Data that is understandable, insightful, interesting, and actionable. I was thinking about your distribution of responsibility and realizing that, yes, and I have been in the position where like the data folks think they know it and they, they own this process and they don't get involved. But I think there's also a tendency for non-data people to say, well, I'm not a data person, you figure it out. And by saying, no, there's going to be this collaborative approach. Everyone is going to be involved in it. It builds this framework and an expectation that even if you don't view yourself as a numbers person, and I'm putting that in air quotes, right, that you have a responsibility and a piece and a role to play in creating this. And you have something very valuable to add, even if you don't know how to run a linear regression, you're bringing important, critical data knowledge from a contextual point of view. And in that insights, that business insights point of view. And, and I definitely have had those discussions before with people where they're like, well, you're the data person, you're going to figure it out. And I go, well, I look at all of this and every single one of these measures are completely the same to me. Like none of them seem more value than the other because I'm not using them on the front line. Like I need you to come to me and, and work with me to pick out which ones of these is going to be useful. Or like you said, I don't know something about the data and I make a mistake in interpreting it because I don't know how it's collected or I haven't seen it, you know, what it means on the front line. So one other last thing about Agile that I wanted to talk about that you had mentioned, and I think this is really important, is that as nonprofits, we're not always the best with scoping things. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about the challenges you've seen around scoping and how, you know, this fail fast, a more iterative approach can help us manage those mistakes we make with scoping. I think working in nonprofits, one of the themes that comes across quite strongly is that people want to design perfect solutions particularly when it comes to, say, some of our beneficiaries who are trying, working tirelessly to, to try to improve their lives. But to borrow another common phrase, you know, we, we often let perfect be the enemy of the good, right? So what, what that means is, you know, we try to scope every single use case. We try to scope every single way someone could use a service and all the interdependencies that may have on other kind of projects, processes, which is good. But what can happen, I often find, is that projects end up going way over time, way over budget, and actually still in the end achieve only a limited 
number of benefits. And that's often because we've been so worried about delivering the whole product in one go that we kind of paralyze ourselves. So the iterative and minimal viable product approach is a really good way to challenge people to say, look, let's not aim for the entirety all in one go. Let's focus on one area at a time or maybe a few core areas at a time, develop those, learn from the process, learn, if we go back to the uh, example of beneficiaries, maybe learn from the beneficiaries about whether this is working out for them or not, and then build upon that. And I think it, it often allows us to go live with new products much faster, whereas before we're trying to achieve 100% of the entirety of our ambitions in one go, now we might only be trying to achieve 60% of it in the first round. Once that goes live, there's also a morale boost. So when you go live, everyone on the project feels more energized, that they feel they've achieved something and they feel invested in the product and they then want to make it better. And people who experience uh, that product, again, if they, if they know that this is an iterative approach, they are more encouraged to give feedback. They know that this is not meant to be perfect up front, but they want to help you make it better so you, you get more feedback. And the iterative approach just means we're no longer sitting here looking at projects that will be maybe two or three years down the line. And these projects kind of, are, I describe them as going dark for two or three years because nobody hears about it anymore. And then all of a sudden it pops up in two or three years time as we're finished uh, and everyone has to be re-engaged about what this whole thing is. But actually, if we keep it on people's minds and we release something, say, in that very extreme example, maybe in the first year, and then we bring out a version two in the second year and a version three out in the third year, I am pretty certain in almost every case that version three in the iterative approach is going to meet the, the desired scope of the project better. It's going to meet the timelines of the um, project better. It's going to meet the budget of the timeline better. And it's going to deliver more benefits because you've had much more opportunity to learn and to adapt along the way. I completely agree with everything that you said. And I think, again, giving ourselves permission to say we can put this in the world before it's perfect, because not only am I just going to have some grace and understand that let's not let, you know, perfect be the enemy of good, but also because it's actually going to result in a better product. It will get me closer to perfect by letting it go free and be in the wild now. I'm going to, like you said, end up with something that is closer to what I wanted by doing this iterative approach. And, and again, it, it breaks the cycle of these paternalistic in, interventions where I go and I create this thing completely by myself and then deliver it onto the people, but instead say, no, we're gonna do this together. And the only way we do this together is if I give you something to engage with and respond to and try and tell me what doesn't work and then we're gonna refine that. Yeah, and I think one other way it helps with scoping is you know, if you don't take an iterative approach, if you take more of a big bang approach, because everyone is then afraid that something could get left out, the mentality from everyone is let's throw as much as we can into this project in terms of scope. Let's make sure every feature that we could possibly dream of is in there, whether they're used or not, whether they're useful or not, whether they're desired or not, let's make sure it's all in there so nobody misses out. Whereas if you say, no, we're going for a minimum viable product and the mentality changes so that everybody is challenging themselves around what actually has to be in this versus what's just nice to be in here. And you have to sort of free people up from this fear that it won't be in, because there's always a chance that after this iteration, the things that they would like to be in it could be in the next iteration. 
So now that people are more challenged to think about what can we take out, what absolutely important for the product we're trying to develop, um, you get much smaller scope projects, which are easier to concentrate on for, for the project team, which are quicker to, um, quicker to develop and roll out. And they're less likely to break or have a missing piece because with fewer components, fewer steps, you're more likely to actually put something together successfully. And I realize this is also where that outcomes focus rather than process focus comes in is that in order to have this sort of this iterative approach of we're going to do the minimum here, you have to know what your core desired outcome is. You have to be crystal clear on like, what is the one, maybe two things? that we really are trying to succeed at here. And we'll try, you know, our, our top two approaches to that. And like you said, then we can always come back and add things later once we get that working. So just to wrap up, if you're willing, I would love to hear maybe one or two lessons out of your experience uh, with the Alzheimer's Society of coming up with this data strategy and implementing it. Um, I think, you know, your agile approach comes out of, of that work. Uh, but I'm also just curious, you know, are there a couple of takeaways that you found from from doing this in the real world, right? Actually having to put pen to paper and people to work, uh, trying to bring a vision of data into the world. Yeah, so the data strategy here at some side was really around building our data capabilities. I think it's probably not uncommon uh, in many organizations, and maybe particularly in some not-for-profit sector organizations, we're not where we would like to be with data. We're probably quite immature. Um, that's certainly been the case in many of the um, organizations I've worked at. And that's not, of, not often through lack of effort, but that's just where we are as an industry. So the aim of the strategy we, we put forward was really around well, how can we rapidly accelerate our way from being very data immature to being more data mature. And we focused on three strands. One was around technology, you know, can we improve our technology to make sure we have fit for purpose tools and the right architecture? One stream was around our people and their skills. We have the right people with the right skills, the right knowledge and experience to be able to take us forward. And the last stream was around governance. Do we have the right governance to look at um, our data? Do we have a holistic view of our data? And do we understand how to control changes to our data? So all of that generated a lot of work but one of the probably key takeaways from doing this over the last three years is the technology bit is the simplest bit it's the easiest bit you can always buy a new piece of technology and there's always somebody out there who's willing to sell you a new piece of technology and particularly now in the last sort of five to ten years with cloud technologies and a move towards SaaS of software as a service model it's, it's getting easier and easier to bring new technology into your organization. The skills for the people, that's one of the harder areas. I think it's fair to say internationally, uh, there are not enough people working in data compared to the need, the number of roles that we need in data. And perhaps you know, some of the best and brightest people get snapped up by private industry who can pay a significant amount more than we are able to pay. Uh, so we're always trying to play catch up. So a lot of it was around developing our people's skills. You know, so things like what we talked about today, agile, things around testing, things around our documentation standards, change management. These were all concepts we had to either in 
introduce or to really reinforce. I think one of the other things I always say is data is still a relatively new industry. It's not as established as things like IT or accountancy or HR. Those are all industries that have been decades old, whereas data is still relatively new. And I would still say, uh, you know, until very recently, most people who came into data never thought they would do data when they were children. Whereas most, a lot of the people who work in IT knew when they were kids that they wanted to do IT. So a lot of people fall into data sort of by accident rather than through formal training. And because they kind of fall into data through accident rather than through training, they come with great mentality and they come with a great mix of different backgrounds and skills. But what they don't always come with is that kind of professionalized way of working. So that's been one of the key emphasis that we had in our strategy was around how can we professionalize what we do in data? We did take a lot of inspiration, I think, from IT. So we talked about Agile today, that's one inspiration with it from IT. But change management is another big um, area that we took from IT as well around managing change, you know, understanding what is a safe way to manage change, uh, both from a technical angle, because you know we um, we certainly don't want to be accidentally deleting data, changing uh, our data to be uh, invalid or incorrect. So really having a tight control on that, uh, and really thinking about governance in terms of but what changes are the most valuable changes? What changes should we prioritize? And how does changes within data reflect changes within the business? Having a much tighter link between data and business, whereas I think in the past, through nobody's fault in particular, but we often had a bit of a disconnect that people were thinking about business processes or business products, and then separately they would think about data processes and data products. But we just wanted to make sure we will link them together so we can really show the value of what we're doing. And that's been a, a long journey over the last three years, and we probably haven't achieved all the things we wanted to set out to achieve. But I think we have made significant headway. I look to my department now and how we do things and the discipline that the team now have and the knowledge that they have compared to three years ago. And, and it's a very different landscape. I think it's also helpful for people to hear that you can set out to do this and you don't have to achieve it all in your first three years, right? You didn't have to have everything happen. And just like we've talked with Agile, right? You've improved, you've made a tremendous amount of progress, and then you have ways that you can refine it and keep moving forward. Yeah, we did take that approach, actually, because although we ran this strategy over three years, we had different themes and different ambitions for each year, which built upon each other. You know, at the beginning, it was just about can we gain a holistic understanding of where our data is, thinking about what is the skill set we have within the team? Can we just recognize that and put that down into a document of what do we have and where could we go? Then in the second year, we started building some of the foundations of working with Agile, working with better change management, working with better processes. And then in the third year, we built on that again by trying to show more value that we can bring using data to the business, linking our data processes with business processes. And all throughout the three years, we were constantly building our relationship with the business units. We use this concept we call business partnering. Beginning of three years, I think it was common for us to think ourselves as uh, sort of internal suppliers and the business as customers. And we really tried to shift away from that kind of viewpoint because we, we want to say, actually, we're not suppliers. 
we're partners, partners within our organization. We're on equal footing. And our contribution is as important to any particular project as the marketing guys, the HR guys, the finance guys, the product guys. And actually for all of our products, whether it's a fundraising product or a volunteering product or a service product, or whether it's a campaign we're running to influence government, all of these, the, the success of all of these products and campaigns is reliant on all of the team members. And we're part of that team. So we are partners in that team. Uh, and that shift the mentality of saying, well, we didn't contribute to the success merely by doing a process or releasing a piece of software. No, we contributed as much as any other part. And the plus side for that is, well, the success of any of these campaigns, any of these products is our success. Uh, and I think that really gave people a, bit, a better sense of ownership over this, made people care more about what they're doing. The flip side is, of course, any failures in those products and campaigns is also our failure. Uh, but again, it, that then forces us to be more introspective and think about what can we learn from that so that next time we don't fail, or at least we don't make that same mistake twice. So I think, yeah, all of these kind of themes and features we put into the base strategy just allowed our team to feel less of a back office team, which is another term we banned now in the department. We no longer see ourselves as a back office team. We very much see ourselves as part of the business, working in partnership. I think that's such an important cultural shift in, in every area for data. So, well, thank you so much for this conversation. I have sheets of paper filled with notes. So I really appreciate all of your insight into this. And I feel like you really made some really critical concepts, very approachable. And I hope that that will help lots of people who are listening find ways to, to move forward and not be afraid so much of that failure uh, with this new approach. So thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you for having me. That was my interview with Bo Ron from the Alzheimer's Society in the UK. One thing that we chatted about afterward was the fact that, yes, if you go and Google Agile, you will be overwhelmed with consultants and week-long trainings and a whole bunch of stuff that you may feel you need in order to successfully apply Agile in the approach that, that Bo defined. But in fact, if you go to the Agile Manifesto, the core document that defines what Agile is, there are 12 principles and four values. It is a very simple approach. So I'm going to link to the manifesto and I would say start there. Don't worry about all of the consultants and the training and all of that. You really can bring a tremendous amount of value to your approach with data just by understanding the basic principles, the way that Bo laid out. This idea of failing fast, of being iterative, of focusing on outcomes, having regular meetings with your group and with stakeholders, doing not just user requirements, but also user acceptance testing. Have the stakeholders engage in what you were building, give you feedback, and make sure that you put something in front of them as fast as possible, have them react to it, and then you refine it. You don't just spend all this time building something with no input whatsoever. And Bo iterated as well that, you know, with his team, when they brought Agile in, they didn't do any of that formal training. They read the manifesto, they looked at these principles, and they said, how can we make these principles work for us to achieve the things that we want to achieve with data? So thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate 
your commitment and attention to this critical topic of advancing the way that we do data. Again, my name is Alexandra Mannering. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day and go forth in peace and beauty. You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Moroccanus, an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at morakanos.com, M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.